Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. One of the most confusing features of American politics over the last decade or so has been the shifting ideological landscape. Donald Trump was a disaster in almost every sense. But one potentially useful thing he did was shatter the stale consensus in Washington. He also exposed the Republican Party in a way no one else could. For decades, the party was an incoherent mix of laissez-faire economics and religious traditionalism. Trump blew all that up. The Democrats, for their part, have spent most of their time battling Trump, which was both necessary, but also kind of depressing because of all the opportunity costs. But here we are. And one of the big questions moving forward is what will American politics look like on the other side of this era? Even if Trump wins in 2024, and I sure as hell won't make any predictions about that, what it means to be a liberal or conservative moving forward will not be the same as it was 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. And that makes me wonder if in all this disruption and chaos, there might be potential for a new coalition in American politics. One that actually addresses the roots of so many of our problems. I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Saurabh Amari. He's the author of a new book called Tyranny, Inc., and a co-founder of Compact Magazine, an intellectually heterodox outlet that includes writers on the far right and left. Amari became one of the faces of the post-liberal American right early in the Trump era, but has since emerged as a critic of conservative orthodoxy. And that makes him a worthwhile read, especially for someone on the left. His latest book is a great example of this. It's written from a conservative point of view, but it's also a full-throttled embrace of New Deal democratic socialism. And it's a book that shows genuine concern for the working class, something I can't say about many books I've read on the right. But this is also what makes Amari so tricky to pin down. He's a cultural conservative with a lefty economic project, 
and it's never entirely clear to me how all this aligns in his worldview, which is why I wanted to have him on the show. We have our disagreements, to be sure, but Amari is trying something truly useful in this book, and I wanted to explore that. Saurabh Amari, welcome to The Gray Area. Thank you for having me, Sean. I have been looking forward to this chat for a very long time. And I think a good way to start this conversation is to ask about your intellectual evolution. You were born in Iran, you become a Marxist and an atheist in your 20s, and you later convert to Catholicism in your 30s. And and now you're the face of the post-liberal American right, whatever that means exactly. It's hard for me to find a through line in there, though I suspect I could if I really looked. But instead, I'll just ask how you explain that evolution to people when they do ask, because I'm sure they ask. Yeah, they certainly do ask that. I think my less charitable critics will just say that Sarab Amari just can't settle on a worldview and he's been this, that, etc. To me, first of all, it's not that exotic of an ideological story. Yes, I was born in, in the Middle East, in the Ayatollah's Iran, where I became an atheist at age 13, 14, in part because you know I came from an educated urban upper middle class milieu and there it was just sort of expected that if you were that religion was something for sort of silly provincial people you've aspired to be an intellectual whatever that meant um, which i didn't quite understand as a teenager it meant that you were an atheist and also it meant that you were just broadly of the left and when i say of the left i don't mean a liberal i mean of the kind of various stripes of socialism or marxism so when I came to the United States, I had those attitudes. As it happens, I landed in northern Utah, which was where our relatives who had obtained us visas through the Family Preference Program, aka Chain Migration, that's where they had settled. So I suddenly found myself in a heavily Mormon state where alcohol and beer was capped at 3% and Mormon seminaries were somehow located right next door to the high school. So I rebelled pretty strongly against that, just sort of as I had against the mullahs of Iran. And like many teenagers, 16, 17 year olds, I read Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra and it spoke pretty powerfully to me of what it means to not be a created creature. That means you can utterly emancipate yourself from all natural or traditional limits and then create your own world. What did that mean in the 20th century or the late 20th century in my case? Well, it meant you could reconfigure the economy completely to be a one without any alienation, one without any exploitation, and hence why I became a Marxist. And that's all pretty, in some ways, despite the Iranian backdrop to it, it's a pretty typical or in some ways mundane story. And likewise, my ultimate decision to choose to be received into the Catholic Church or to be called to be received into the Catholic Church is not that exotic. You know, there's lots of atheists and Marxists of various, various stripes who later in life embraced Catholicism. For me, the through line, first of all, I have a very universalist cast of mind. So what speaks to me in Marxism is the idea that, you know, the world is largely legible, that there's a kind of total way of understanding the universe. And more than that, there's a kind of romance in that kind of youthful Marxism of history itself setting right every wrong and history having an ultimate telos or direction. It's the most kind of Hegelian type of Marxism that appealed to me in those early years. And likewise, Catholicism obviously is is a total account of of the world, of human beings, of what makes us feel so broken and how we can maybe overcome that brokenness. It's an aspiration for a universal account of the world and of uh, especially of, of morality and, and social order. Maybe the through line there is that you are 
a seeker, like someone who, who looks for needs a higher fixed ultimate truth. And maybe that's what connects all of those different systems or worldviews, which is interesting to me because I, I sort of have the opposite instinct mm-hmm. where I sort of, I'm not sure the world is nearly as legible as we would like it to be, or as we would prefer it to be. And I sort of lean into the, the uncertainty in that way. And, and at least in my worldview, I, I have found as comforting as certainty can be, lots and lots of ill has come to the world through people who were convinced that, <laughs> that they were absolutely right. Certainly, you know, one of the reasons I no longer am an old-fashioned, you know, orthodox Marxist is because of of my revulsion. I mean, at some point you stop reading sort of hagiographies of Trotsky and reading actually about how, you know, the Russian Revolution turned out in its aftermath. And, you know, if you're intellectually honest, you sort of recoil from that. I would argue that um, just because some universalisms are horrifically violent inherently, right, because of the sort of zeal that they give their supporters doesn't mean that all of them are like that. So in the case of Catholicism, there's, or is supposed to be all sorts of backstops and limits against that. The idea that human beings are fallen is is supposed to give us a certain humility about how, how much we can act in the world. You know, the idea of natural loss, which is complicated and we don't need to unpack it here, but it sets up all sorts of limits to trying to reconfigure society in a total way. Uh, that doesn't mean that Catholics in history over two millennia of this kind of institutional church haven't tried to do that and haven't made mistakes. But so just just to say that not all universalisms are equally awful, uh, but that we're get, we're becoming overly philosophical, perhaps. Yeah, but our audience happily comes along with us. Um, let's pivot a little bit more to sort of the subjects of this book and what fascinated me about it. I'm sure you have a vague sense of my own politics. I, I would very loosely define myself as as a supporter of democratic socialism. And I found myself agreeing with you a ton in this book, much more than not. And that was surprising to me. Help me make sense of that. Why in the world was I feeling all this solidarity <laughs> with you while reading this book? It feels very Twilight zone for me. You're right. Well, hopefully it's not too discomforting. No, not at all. Not at all. Okay, good. Well, I think the reason for that is because although I wouldn't describe myself as a democratic socialist, I would describe myself and have been described this way as a as a New Dealer, specifically a pro-life New Dealer, which isn't such a paradoxical or oxymoronic label because of the actual <laughs> New Dealers, many of them were pro-life because that was just the norm in, in the 1930s. So I have been trying to grapple with the American tradition, specifically with the problem of economic coercion in American life. And so the book, I mean, just to unpack the title is Tyranny Inc. is about the way our supposedly non-coercive society is in fact suffused with coercion, with people being forced to do things in unjust ways. So kind of very, there are many examples of this in the book and it's largely a reported book, but one, Easy one is, you know, I I actually bring out the, I report on this employment agreement for a very large company in the United States, which as part of becoming a an employee, you, in order to earn a paycheck, you agree to relinquish your voice, your singing voice, your persona, everything about you for commercial purposes, the employment agreement goes on, which the, that your employer can then license in perpetuity if it wants to, to any licensee, and you have no recourse to sue 
either your employer or the subsequent licensee for any abuse of your voice that might be taking place for commercial purposes. So that's a kind of obscene form of coercion made possible by vast disparities in power and income between you know, a, a relatively small asset-owning few and a large group of asset-less many workers and lower middle-class people, middle-class people. And it's been a problem in America. It's a kind of continuous thread in American history, and it has long belied our highest ideals. And there's always been a counter tradition to that and efforts to reform that, I would argue, beginning with the Jacksonian era, but that they find their fullest flowering in the New Deal. This idea that we recognize that markets may be good, but that they can also, unhindered markets can generate these unjust inequalities that uh, make a mockery of democracy. They make a mockery of just the politics, politics as such as the pursuit of the common good. And so we should try to ameliorate that and, and sort of raise up the countervailing power of the people who are subjected to this kind of coercion. And in that sense, I'm, you know, a, Yes, a New Dealer. And in fact, the book, in the second half of the book, I champion the New Deal tradition as kind of a broad blueprint that uh, could form a new consensus against kind of the current abuses. And just very quickly, I mean, so you're not the only one. The book has, has received largely you know, positive uh, reception so far among left of center outlets. Why aren't there more pro-life New Dealers, to use your phrase, right? I mean, one thing I have to say, and I, and I mean it sincerely, whatever our disagreements, and I'm sure we'll run into a few here, I see in this book a real concern for working class people. And I frankly don't see that in the vast majority of conservatives who, to my mind, pretend to care about such things. Why is there so much faux populism on the right? Why aren't there more conservatives who are serious in the way that you are about these sorts of issues? So this is an issue that I grapple with all the time. It's been a source of tremendous disappointment over the past few years. I mean that in the sense that I saw myself as part of a cohort of mainly Catholic intellectuals who were really serious about remaking the GOP as a populist uh, vehicle, given the fact that in 2016, decisive margins of working class people voted for Trump, a ballot which he then subsequently consolidated four years later, 2020, despite losing, he expanded that into notable sort of shares of working class people of color as well. And I was much more let's say optimistic about this as recently as two, three years ago, such that when this book was conceived was actually on election night, 2020, you know, before before it was clear that Trump had lost already the early polling numbers, as you remember, showed that uh, again, working class people, including working class people of color were voting for the GOP. So it's like, wow, okay, well, we can do something with that. And you'll remember the buzzword among Republican officials and kind of the commentary of the right of the multiracial working class. But then looking back now, I see that much of that opportunity was wasted, including during the Trump era. I will say something for the tariffs, which, you know, not even his Democratic successor has has lifted and the wider decoupling from China, which kind of has brought forth what may be a post-neoliberal moment. Now, we, I know we'll get into neoliberalism and that discussion later, but it's something that's now become kind of the fact that we should have more regional supply chains and more manufacturing closer to home or at home is now conventional wisdom, you know, for the Biden administration, for the editorial board of the Financial Times. But beyond that, which I think is Trump's one achievement, nothing was done. You know, his his Department of Labor was as 
kind of all too typically Republican as any, stuffed with union busters. Well, he tried to undo the Affordable Care Act, which I think was an imperfect achievement, but nevertheless a big achievement. Um, I personally, as an immigrant, I remember my first few years here, when we first immigrated to the United States, my mother and I, you know, although we were upper class, or no, I shouldn't say upper class, but upper middle class in Iran, you know, my parents had gone through a divorce in Iran, and then there was a kind of brutal exchange rate such that when we first ended up here, we were actually in pretty dire straits, and we lived in, you know, a trailer park and in Utah. And what I remember the most about those years was the fact that we we were very precarious about our insurance. My mother could only access this like very shoddy forms of insurance available while she was a grad student. Uh, available at these low-wage jobs. And our fear was never of getting sick. Our, the fear was, what would the bills be like that were sure to invade our mailbox a few days later after going to the doctor? It was experiences like this that were sort of in the back of my mind, like, you know, that precariousness, which is a result of powerlessness, is so pervasive in the American economy for working-class people. The Republican Party failed to do much about it. It complained about Wall Street, but the best reforms are still to be found among like Senator Boren. They complained about big tech, but it's Lena Khan, who's now President Biden's competition czar, who was putting forward the best investigations and reforms. So why is that? I mean, that's I'll, it's causes, I think several. One is I mean, the influence of a few sociopathic billionaires. Uh, the way, it's not like the Democrats don't have billionaire donors, but the way they, and I've seen this because I've been in, in some of these rooms, the way Republicans relate to their donors is different. It's a sort of just utterly, well, what do you say, great man? You know, whereas because the Democrats have other bases, including labor, it's a, the relationship is a little bit more complex and Democrats can sort of tell their plutocratic class, sometimes they can tell them to sort of shut up. That's one. The other one is the lack of personnel who's actually interested in this stuff. You have a lot of like young hotshot populists on the Capitol Hill, but they don't have the language for it. Then, and they ultimately easily fall back into kind of typical Republican grooves because they have to beat up the left to their minds. But the biggest of all, which is a very uncomfortable topic to talk about, is that the power base of the Republican Party is not these new working class people that increasingly vote for it. And nor in some ways is it just the billionaires. The power base of the Republican Party is the regional and small capital. It's like the tire distribution chain owner in the research triangle of North Carolina or something who goes to rubber chicken dinners and toasts the self-made man. And it, that this is a kind of, especially kind of, I hate it's a use, it was a word that used about me, but in, in this case, I think it's justly applied is that it's a genuinely reactionary class. Um, since the Jacksonian era, the kind of small entrepreneur or small time rich rightly sees that large corporations and, and finance or banking have unjust privileges that they decry, whereas they themselves are always sort of victims of the vagaries or the vicissitudes of the market. They see that, but their answer is always, if only we just got rid of government. So they would only smash the few regulatory structures that would that still kind of constrain the market system to an extent. And that's the one that's hard to talk about because you know, you're supposed to celebrate small business, but it, it can actually be a kind of a hindrance to a populist GOP. Well, my theory has always been that the people who run the Republican party have never really cared about any of the culture war stuff or the working and middle class and that they used culture war politics in large part as a distraction and a laundering device for essentially plutocratic economic policies. <laughs> Sounds like you and I may not diverge too much on that. 
No, it's sort of the what's the matter with Kansas thesis. I, except, I mean, I would say, look, in some cases, the cultural issues can cut in favor of the Republican position. So in this one, we, we may disagree. I only mentioned it in a footnote in Tyranny Inc., but like for a very long time, the labor movement in this country was opposed to loose restrictions on immigration, in part because it recognized if you have a vast reserve army of labor that's always willing to work for less and is vulnerable in various ways, that undercuts wages. So it's not always neatly that what's the matter with Kansas thesis, uh, the Tom Frank thesis, as you say, but it very often is, right? So like corporations have too much power, but in the Republican frame, that becomes just about wokeness, so-called wokeness, like in the workplace, right? So it doesn't follow that next step is, hey, what if we empower workers so that they can resist ideological pressure from employers, whatever the ideology may be, whether it's the leftist or a right-wing ideology. So how does tyranny actually work? That's coming up after a quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with Wise. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let Wise help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using Wise worldwide. To learn more about how a Wise account could work for you, download the app or visit wise.com. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com, wise.com. I would say that the central argument in the book, or certainly one of them, is that we have had in our heads a vision of how tyranny works. And this is especially true for conservatives. And that vision, put simply, is that tyranny comes from the state. 
tell me why that's wrong or misleading or very importantly, incomplete. I would say it's incomplete because certainly there can be tyrannical states and to the credit of the American tradition in general, that it's very alert to the possibility of, of state tyranny. But the sense that tyranny can only come from the government risks obscuring another more complicated reality, which is that private actors, as classical kind of philosophy has long recognized, private actors can can tyrannize us, they can certainly coerce us. And in fact, that economic life in general is full of coercion, as Robert Hale, whom I cite in the book, is a great early 20th century. His famous essay was in 1923 about coercion in supposedly non-coercive societies. In a way, all economic interactions are premised on coercion, contrary to the kind of Milton Friedmanite or uh, neoclassical economic dogma that suggests that, you know, every transaction is consensual because there's uh, there's always competition and everyone can walk away from a deal to find a better one elsewhere. In reality, especially after the Industrial Revolution, uh, there's only so many sellers in any given market and so many employers and many, many more employees who have to compete with each other. And that fact, the fact that markets are typically oligopolistic and rationally oligopolistic in some ways, means that competition isn't such a panacea uh, in terms of responding to coercion. But conservatives, especially in this country, labor under and, and it's not just conservatives, it's like our business schools, a lot of a kind of the economic uh, economics departments, et cetera, the sort of ideological apparatus that helps us think about the economy operates on the basis of essentially a lost Arcadia of the late 18th century where, you know, this brief period when capitalism was dominated by so-called masterless men. So yeoman farmers and mechanics, artisans, etc., who basically worked for themselves, owned their own land, owned their own tool. And they really could walk away from any deal and find a better one elsewhere. And the price mechanism was probably a more pristine index of supply and demand. But that world hasn't existed for nearly two centuries now, since the mid 19th century, at least. And so the ideology that the private sector is a zone of freedom and only government can be a source of tyranny actually redounds to the pre- to the benefit of actually existing market tyrants because we don't, especially we on the right, not you, don't think of the market as a place where we could be coerced and especially unjustly coerced. I would say what I appreciate about your argument here is that I do think the conception of freedom we inherited from people obsessed with state tyranny, with all the focus on negative rights, you know, which is about the things people can't do to us. This way of thinking obscures a very real but different type of unfreedom, which is what happens when people don't have meaningful choices in their life because the things they need to survive and thrive are so precarious and contingent. Like it's great to not live in a totalitarian state, but what's the point of living in a state where you may not have the boot of big brother on your neck, but your one medical diagnosis removed from bankruptcy, where your access to healthcare is tied to very tenuous unemployment. That's not real freedom. Is it the same as being in a labor camp? Nope. Is it better than living in Stalinist Russia? Yep. No question. But it's not the kind of freedom we ought to aspire to. And for me, I think the left has always been more alive to this truth than the right. I absolutely agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. You can find statements to that effect of what really it takes to have human flourishing and what really it takes, what human liberty is. You can find rich 
accounts of that in, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church and Catholic social teaching, which jibed with the social democratic and Christian democratic movement, especially in Europe in the kind of mid-century era. That said, it's, I mean, it's hands down, it's the left that is far more deeply attuned to this. And to give you an example of what that kind of precarity looks like and how it translates into, I mean, I this is a well-known example, but as most of your listeners know, you know, 40% of Americans, you know, the Federal Reserve tells us would struggle to come up with $400 in cash to pay for an emergency. Half of fast food workers and a quarter of adjunct college teachers have to rely on public welfare to make ends meet. Now, that latter one is especially important because the worst kind of economy to have, as my friend Michael Lind argues, is a low wage, high benefits uh, society. When he says high benefits, it doesn't mean that the benefits are really generous. In fact, they're quite miserly. It's ju it just means that as a share of the amount of money that people need to make ends meet, benefits are disproportionately high. So that subjects you in two ways. It subjects you to the employer because you're always desperate for work and your wages are never enough. So you never have that sense of security that makes it possible for you to venture out into the world and see, really kind of exercise your freedom rather than just being sort of tyrannized by just your need to make a wage that just barely, that in fact doesn't make ends meet. But you're also in some ways, you're at the mercy of the welfare state administrator as well, right? Who can discipline you in various ways. Oh, did you spend $12 of your food stamps to buy beer or cigarettes or what have you, which is the kind of petty tyranny that poor and working class people face on the other end of the system. And so that altogether amounts to kind of a tremendous sense of, as we said, precarity and ultimately unfreedom. And here's my frustration with most of the right, which I, if you follow my Twitter, you begin to see more and more, especially in this book, is that the right sometimes correctly decries the symptoms of this, right? It's like, well, why aren't people having children? Why aren't they forming families? Why is all this alienation per so pervasive, deaths of despair, et cetera? The right largely, there are exceptions to this, but largely the right kind of blinkers itself to the possibility that this might have some material roots, that there might be some nexus. No, it's worse than that, right? They stoke the resentments produced by those material conditions while totally. reinforcing those totally. very conditions. I mean, it's an absolute political doom <laughs> totally. that we're all stuck Totally in. right, totally right. And so to go to your original question, the left has always been more attuned to this, I would say yes. And the reason for that is because there was this serious turn toward understanding the role of the material order in the shape of our culture and recognizing that our material order is not sort of naturally ordained. Market societies don't grow on trees. It's the choices we make politically and especially elites make politically that make for the shape of our economy. And that that that's always been the left's best insight that actually we could change that. Like we don't, it doesn't have to be this way is I think sort of the best um, political economic insight of the left. Well, let's talk about one reason it is this way. And the main villain, if that's an appropriate word in the book is neoliberalism, which is the successor ideology to laissez-faire capitalism. And basically the governing economic doctrine of our society since the late 70s, early 80s. For the love of God, I, I won't ask you to define neoliberalism, though you do a decent job of that in the book, but I do think it's important to, to ask why neoliberalism is such an important character in this story you're telling. What, what should people know about that? Yep. So neoliberalism is what came after classical liberalism 
And I argue that classical liberalism is a kind of utopian ideology. It's utopian in the sense that I call it market utopianism. It imagines that there can be a an autonomous market. It's like a machine, you just set it. And by the way, they don't acknowledge that the bringing about of the autonomous market itself was a result of tremendous state coercion that displaced older forms of life. But setting that aside, you sort of set it and forget it. You never have a problem of coercion because there's always competition. Of course, this is just, as we discussed, is not the case. The price signal in many industries and in most industries and most markets, the price signal is nothing more than an index of relative bargaining power, right? When you have two or three big actors in any industry, which is a kind of oligopolistic condition, they get to set the price for their goods and also to set the price for labor, which is you know, another way to say they set wages. There's no sort of mysterious process that creates a wage that is just just perfectly indexed to the workers, you know, marginal productivity as classical economic theory insists. It's That's just nonsense. But that's just classical liberal theory. It, you know, except for antitrust, basically leave the market alone. Neoliberalism is far more sinister and radical than that in the sense that neoliberalism says not only should the state leave the market alone, but that the state has to be reconfigured to resemble the market. And that's the kind of shift that we begin to introduce ever more kind of market-like econometric and measures for what it means that a state is successful. Every element of life becomes more and more marketized. And so I quote Michel Foucault that neoliberalism seeks to govern society by the market. So it's not just that society should leave the market alone, but that the market governs society. The society exists for the sake of the market. So, I mean, there's many examples of this um, in public and private hospitals increasingly. Even hospital chaplains are given productivity scores. So these are people who feel called by God to accompany the dead in their final moments, but they're harried by these kind of computerized systems that determine how kind of productive they've been. I argue the chief characteristic of neoliberalism, though, is precisely because it redefines state and society in market terms, is depoliticization. That is, things that are ultimately up for political contestation get removed from the realm of political contestation so that, you know, you might be feel very harried. You can never find enough time to spend with your family because your bosses can email you at any time. And the expectation is that whatever time of day it is, you have to be able to respond to him or her immediately. This is something that's a result of a political power imbalance. And, you know, a decent society would seek to use politics to ameliorate that and introduce greater balance. So like maybe, I don't know, pass a law that says the employers can't email you after a certain time of day or what have you. But neoliberalism doesn't do that. It says, well, that's not, that, that not only is that not political, but you know what? We have this great app. It's a work-life balance app for only $4.99 a month. It'll help you answer your boss's emails and schedule in time. And it tracks how much time spent you send with your kids. Now I made that up, but that's the kind of supreme neoliberal move of removing from a realm of political or class contestation things that are eminently about political power and lack of power. Coming up after one more quick break, how do we move forward in the wake of neoliberalism? Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. 
If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. This podcast is supported by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research on behavioral science and dives into questions like, can we learn to make smarter decisions? And what is the power of negative thinking? The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, In each episode, Katie talks to authors, athletes, Nobel laureates, and more about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones. Choiceology is out now. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or find it wherever you listen. state has been subordinated to the market, right? And so what I take from what you're saying here and in the book is that neoliberalism has actually supplanted democracy in a very real way because it relocates the source of our unfreedom in the private sphere, where for that reason exactly, it is immune to democratic checks and accountability. I mean, that is that a fair summation? Mm-hmm. Precisely. So if you're right about that, if the private sphere has inhaled the public sphere, in what sense are we still doing politics in this country? And that may sound strange. What I mean is if politics is about contesting public power, but the real power in our society is private and beyond the scope of democratic accountability, then what the hell is the point of democratic politics? What are we doing? Well, um, you know, we certainly have a legislature that appears, you know, his members appear on Fox and MSNBC and sort of yell at each other from a distance. But it's a great TV show. I'll give you that. It's a great TV show. No, I mean, I think that's very disheartening. And it's why it's really important to reassert the primacy of the political. Any any politician who comes and says X, Y, Z thing, which we've been told is beyond political contestation, is actually the subject of political contestation will be rewarded, I think, because people feel this frustration. And I think the populace of left and right, especially in that sort of high point of American, and I could say maybe Western populism, which was 2015-16, you know, Syriza, Sanders, Trump, they all, to one degree or another, emphasizing different issues said, no, 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 like, Corporate-led globalization is not the natural, rational result of just market forces unfolding. Those are 
political choices from which we didn't get to have a say. For Trump, it would be for immigration, et cetera. It doesn't mean like they got every issue right. In fact, in many cases, it was all very inchoate and messy as populist movements tend to be. What I try to tell people who, there's a genre of writers, you know, some of them I consider friends like Yasha Munk or others of whom I don't, you know, they always say, you know, we have to defend democracy. And the way they say it, it's as though it's a matter of just saying that, like, if you just say enough that democracy is good or, you know, let's preserve our order, it'll convince anyone but people who are kind of comfortable in the current order. But if you have lots of people who only experience this kind of privatized politics in which life just becomes a little bit more miserable and and precarious all the time, to tell them like, you, you gotta love democracy, you know, defend democracy, it means nothing. And so, you know, that that's a call. I mean, now to be fair to Yasha, he would say, yep, and my answer is we should have a greater democratic contestation and, and my version of this kind of ideology, liberal ideology permits greater room for you know social democratic reforms, and I, I respect that. But um, where it becomes, I think, very cynical on the part of the establishment, the centrist kind of uniparty establishment, is where it's just a matter of j- just telling people to love democracy more when it's all been hollowed out, as you described. Well, then there's the question of what the hell can we do? What is the way forward here? I mean, something you talk a- about in the book is the creation and the subsequent destruction of what has traditionally been called countervailing power. Maybe it would help for you to say kind of what that term means and what a restoration of it for workers would look like in the 21st century, because presumably that is exactly the kind of thing that you think we need to do or have to do in order to rebalance the scales. Countervailing power was a term used, uh, popularized, I should say, by an economist who's very hard to ideologically pinned down, John Kenneth Galbraith, a mid-century figure, you know, friend of the Kennedys, but not obviously a leftist per se. One of these ideologically elusive kind of slippery figures of the mid-century era, but I think like a genius. And so I, I rely on his work a great deal. And it's quite simple is that he argues that in any market where there are kind of oligopolistic formation, where there are just a few producers and sellers and buyers, basically, let's just use those terms, or just a few buyers, which would be the case of a a labor market. There are far fewer buyers of labor than there are sellers of labor. That typically the way to bring balance to what would otherwise be a highly coercive relationship is to raise up the countervailing power who are of the people on the other side of the market who are subjected to that. So sometimes this happens organically. For example, large department stores, they mount countervailing power against manufacturers and buy bulk cheaper, and then they pass on the savings to consumers. But in other markets, there has to be some government intervention to create and help raise up countervailing power. So New Dealers, you know, as you know, famously set up all these like farming co-ops, electricity co-ops, et cetera, which were government supported, but also somewhat voluntaristic, et cetera. That's one example of it as, you know, the countervailing power of consumer communities. Another one is labor unions. That's the most kind of famous essential example of countervailing power and one where government intervention is essential. Why? Because of precisely the imbalance in power that we've been talking about this whole show. For any individual worker, it's more rational to try to do their best on their own, succeed at work, et cetera, hope they don't get sick, hope they don't get into an argument with the boss and see the best they can do. So it doesn't make sense for them to sort of do politics at work because they feel so vulnerable. 
That's why in order to have countervailing power in the workplace, there has to be government encouragement to collective action and collective bargaining. And that's the most important thing that New Dealers did. They created us all these uh, kind of alphabet soup of agencies, but the one that was most important to shifting the shape of our economy away from the sort of brutal 19th century and first three decades of the 20th century toward this period of mass prosperity, rising middle-class wages, et cetera, was by raising the countervailing power of workers through the Wagner Act. So there are certain conditions that were present then that are not here anymore. So for example, we've had a wave of the wave of globalization and automation in certain industries. But I argue and I show using research from the Economic Policy Institute that that's overstated. The role of globalization and automation in chipping away at labor unionization in the US is overstated typically by people who want to say it's inevitable. In fact, it is possible to restore union density, I think, in the United States. If we restore the Wagner Act, first of all, because it's been kind of distorted by Taft-Hartley, which gave employers a quote-unquote free speech right to campaign against unionization, and then by lots of Republican-dominated National Labor Relations Board and Republican-dominated Supreme Courts, they chipped away at it such that in order to organize a union at your workplace, it's become a gauntlet because of these kind of chipping away at the Wagner Act. So we have to restore it, but maybe we need to even go further and do sectoral bargaining. You know, in Europe, you don't have to like join a union and it's an immediate battle royal between you and the employer. In many industries, especially in continental Europe, if you join that industry, you're already part of the union. Now, if you want to take a more active role, by all means, but otherwise you can just sort of do your job and it's once a year, management, government, and the labor union will meet and you know, hammer out working conditions, wages, et cetera. And it's just a more healthy process. It's not this kind of ugly battle with union consultants and union busting, all of that. You don't have to go through that. So I think if maybe the next generation of populists, especially center-left populists, push for a new Wagner Act, we could restore something of workplace democracy. You know, what's interesting to me is I feel like in a lot of ways, your book is sort of an olive branch to the left to try to find this sort of common cause, which is one of the reasons I was sympathetic to a lot of what I was reading. And it's something, I, Matthew McManus, who's a mm -hmm. political theorist and, and a former guest on our show, he wrote a sharp review of your book from the left. Mm -hmm. I know, Matt. Which yeah. I thought was was very good. And, and, and his argument is that you can't separate the left's commitment to economic justice from its desire to undo patriarchal and cultural hierarchies because all of it springs from this common normative aspiration that's always animated the left, which is the pursuit of liberty and equality for everyone, regardless of their circumstances. And I think his point here is about the limits of the sort of left-right coalition you're after and whether, and whether simply resisting economic power is sufficient without also waging these other battles. Do you share this doubt or do you not see a tension here? I certainly see the tension and um, some of the reviews are already out as we're recording this from center-left outlets. And I would say the entire pattern of the reviews is typically like, wow, he does such a great job of describing how coercion works in the economy and how countervailing power is necessary to combat it. But, you know, he's a Catholic and a political Catholic. I mean, I don't deny that. And so therefore, um, some of his goals are at, at odds with the broad left. And I don't deny that. I don't discount the tension. I would say a few things. The first thing, though, is that a ton of working class people in this country 
have social views like mine. It don't mean they're like in five decades of the rosary a day, daily mass going, you know, da-da-da-da types, but they have this desire for um, their normative ideal of a family is one in which one income is enough to make ends meet. And their ideal of that is that typically, you know, it's the man who is the father who who provides that. Now, I, I would argue sort of like the policies that I promote in this book also apply to families and it would help a, you know, single mom, you know, who's just the sole breadwinner or whatever other family formation that doesn't fit that normative model would still do well by the sort of proposals in the book. But they have these ideas. And so I think that unless the left is prepared to be even more alienated or de-aligned is the term that's often used, the, the de-alignment between the left and the working class, it has to be a little bit less absolutist about its cultural positions, which is an interesting thing to point out. But like you say, the labor movement is maximal on reproductive rights, which it is, you know, the official labor movement. Well, that's partly a sign of the weakness of the labor movement, because that means that they have to be overly beholden to the politics of the Democratic Party. Wherever you are on abortion, there are lots of working class people who have a more restrictive view uh, on abortion. doesn't mean they're from conception, but they fall in various places. But a lot of people think, you know, after the first trimester, abortion is abhorrent or something like that. And there has to be, you know, a pro-worker movement that has a place for those people. Um, otherwise, you have a left that is very much aligned with suburban moms, neoconservatives, any number of people who have liberal social views, but aren't working class people. That's one point. The other one I would just make is the current form of identitarian leftism has this tendency to, you know, the proliferation of these sort of different identities could work to the benefit of the employer in the workplace. And this is something that Zara Wagenknecht is a, she's a very interesting person, the head of the left party in Germany, D-Link, points out that, you know, that sort of ideology is always about finding what's different about people. And so that comes hard to build solidarity if you're always like, well, I am this and that, and that's a point of contention with you who might be X, Y, and Z. So I think the emphasizing a kind of more universalistic and easy to identify with so that people who can join hands across their differences is worthwhile for the less. The last thing I would just say is that some of the, again, the kind of identitarian elements of the left today definitely redound to the benefit of corporations in the sense that they provide legitimation for a massively unequal society. You know, the REI outdoor gear chain had a podcast just a few months ago led by their chief diversity officer. And this person begins, you know, hello, I'm so-and-so, my pronouns are she, her. And I just want to acknowledge that I'm coming to you from the traditional lands of the alone people. And by the way, the topic of the podcast was why you shouldn't join a labor union. So those are elements where I think there's, the, the tension is on Matt's side where, Look, I, go ahead. On that particular point, I'm with you. I mean, again, it's it's similar to the story of a, a Christian small, say, right? The black Amazon worker who, who, you know, while Amazon was dumping millions and millions of dollars into their Black Lives Matter advertising campaign, he was actually trying to organize a union and defend their labor rights. And they they cast him out for that. With, they cast him out and called him not smart or articulate in an internal memo. Right. So I, I'm with you on that. But I will say in defense of, I think, where Matt is coming from is the sort of tyranny you're rejecting in the book is real and worth toppling but also mm -hmm. bodily integrity, the right to self-determine, the dignity of being who you really are. That's all essential to a free life as well. Just as essential as not being tyrannized by unaccountable 
employers. And there is a branch of conservatism that that does actually prefer the cultural hierarchies of yesterday that does think the patriarchy say was good and necessary, that does think gay and trans people don't deserve full equality under the law. I'm not ascribing all that to you. I'm just saying that it exists. And I suspect the battle over these things will persist regardless of what we do in the economic sphere. You may actually disagree with all that. Believe me, I have this conversation on different levels and I, and, you know, I try to convene people of, of left and right together and like try to think, okay, how do we propose a post-neoliberal vision or consensus despite our differences. And there are some ways, and they're not neat and they won't satisfy you. They don't satisfy me completely because I'm, you know, I have my views, you know, in some ways my revulsion at exploitation in the workplace is inspired from the same place that makes me recoil, for example, at euthanasia, right? A treatment of lives under perfectly kind of nice seeming liberal mode that of life, certain lives being not worthy of, worthy of life. Say, uh, wouldn't it be better if you, you know, euthanized yourself? You're so old. Oh, you're so ill. So anyway, like there's some of my pro-worker commitments come from a, a place of morality or a, or a set of moral commitments that frankly are in tension with, with those of like Matt and probably you, Sean. That said, there are two ways to deal with this. One, I think, is a mode of, look, we will continue to agree to disagree about culture. That's just politics, but we can build coalitions the way, for example, that the Nixon-Eisenhower tradition of the Republican Party came to uphold the New Deal despite having ferocious disagreements with New Dealers on other stuff. So, you know, that's just kind of retail politics. It's con- consensus politics. We will have those disagreements another day is the kind of- Yeah, and look, I, I, I would say, you know, I, while I, I don't think creating a, a freer and more economically just society will solve all of our cultural and political problems, I do believe, and, and maybe this is my leftist sensibility coming through, that a population that isn't living under precarity and unfairness will be much less likely to succumb to the sort of resentments and anxieties that can lead to very ugly nativist politics, which is why I'm very happy to join you in this fight. Yeah, no, I, I that, that's certainly, that's, 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 uh, I, I agree with that as well. Um, I think that this is really just echoing what you just said, so forgive me, but it's, I'm putting it in my own words, but a lot of these different kinds of identitarian resentments, and I'm, I'm really terrified of some of what's happening in the online right. A lot of my friends tell me, oh, it's just it's just shit posting. But there's a kind of racist e-right that gets under my skin in such a profound way. But I, I do think that a lot of it is precisely because we don't have avenues for living a relatively less precarious life, a more decent life. And for example, if we're fired at the workplace, you know, some way of contesting that and not being so dispensable, you know, at the office, that people double down on various kinds of identitarian, they, they raise up these identitarian fortresses, you know, including left-wing and right-wing varieties of it. I think if we have a society in which, even if you don't have a college degree, you can make ends meet relatively well and retire in dignity and take care of your elderly parents and raise children without being worried that if they get sick, you're gonna go bankrupt. If you have that, I think the temperature of the culture war will come down. It's not going to resolve everything. You know, there's, there's some real profound disagreements, but it could kind of turn down the temperature a little bit. And um, I think we'll be a little bit less at each other's throat on cultural issues. I think that's right. And I am with you in being a post-neoliberal, but I'm not a post-liberal. 
in the way that you are. And, you know, maybe where we really diverge is on this question of, of what comes after liberalism or, or what's even possible after liberalism. Mm-hmm. You know, I, for one, think the enlightenment set us on a path to liberalism. And in a lot of your previous work, you talk about the common good or the higher good. And I never know what that means exactly because it implies some kind of moral consensus or consensus about what the good life looks like. But liberalism exists precisely because humans conceded the absence of transcendent moral absolutes and decided our political order should aim at protecting the individual's right to be whoever or whatever they want. And I assume maybe that is where you and I... I think yeah. that that is a, a point of disagreement. I mean, we don't have to adjudicate um, it here, <laughs> but... We don't, we don't have to adjudicate it, but I think, I think that you pinpointed where the disagreement lies. A lot of our political language and ideological categories have become so stale and scrambled, and it often doesn't feel like it maps onto the world that we're living in now. And I appreciate that this book cuts through a lot of it and at least tries to inch us a little bit beyond some of those dead categories. And for that, I say thank you and well done, comrade. (laughs) Thank you, Sean. And thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Once again, the book is called Tyranny, Inc., How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It. It is a genuinely interesting read and I do recommend it. Sora Bamari, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming in. Cheers, Sean. Thanks. Erica Wong engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. Serena Solen is our fact checker. And A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at the gray area at box.com. If you dug this episode, share the link with your friends on all the socials. We're off next week for Labor Day, but we'll be back with a new episode on Monday, September 11th. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.